Hello, welcome to Brownline Church's Midweek Podcast. I am Vince, and I'm here with Kyle. Yellow. And today we are continuing our discussion from Sunday on decentralizing the God of the powerful in order to do what we've been trying to do over uh, the last month and, and for next month here at the church, centralizing voices that have not usually been centralized about what God is about, what faith is about, what Jesus is about. We have to remove what has taken up too much space in the center. And so, uh, Kyle, you were uh, graciously uh, self-disclosing about a little bit of what that story has been like for you. And I wanted to jump in on uh, something that stood out to me um, from uh, what we talked about. Mm -hmm. And also, it kind of connects with something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Linda. And that is the difference between sin theologies and liberation theologies. A lot of what we're talking about is a move away from sin theologies and a move toward liberation theologies. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between those two. When I frame what you were talking about on Sunday that way, what what jumps out to you? It's about how we understand what the Bible's talking about when it refers to sin. You know, when we say a sin theology in that context, I think what we're really saying is a guilt innocence focus on individual transgression. Am I guilty or am I innocent based off of the behavior for which I could be prosecuted for? Did I am I guilty or innocent in um, breaking that rule? Am I guilty or innocent in my behavior, in my actions, in my thoughts? And so the role that Jesus plays in that then is kind of the one who takes on our individual punishments. So you know, I should be, you know, in the context of of the cross, I should be punished violently for my dishonesty. I should be punished violently for whatever of my kind of code of conduct I have been found guilty of. And Jesus stands in front of that guilt, receives it, takes the punishment that's rightfully mine, and then I'm made innocent, and then I get pathways to heaven. That's a very, that's a, that's the, how we understand sin in that context. On the other hand, liberation is talking about sin is anything and everything that keeps human flourishing and human uh, freedom in oppression. So that can be individual. It can be a sense of my dishonesty and my uh, kind of manipulation is a sin, but it's not just because I am guilty under the understanding of my 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 contract with god it's because that action keeps me in bondage keeps me in oppression of what lying and dishonesty does but even more so perpetuates a society where oppression and persecution gets to flourish and so whereas we would say under the guilt innocence sin paradigm what jesus is offering is making me innocent in a liberation focus of sin what Jesus is offering is freedom from internal or social oppression. An interesting part of uh, liberation theologies that I don't think is included in sin theologies is how, uh, depending on where you live in the society pecking order, freedom might look different for you. For those on the uh, bottom of society, Freedom is, is literally because you've been oppressed and you are being liberated. But then for those who are, in, uh, who are, who are on the, the top of the pecking order, who, uh, who benefit from privilege or from power, 
there is another kind of freedom uh, offered, and that is freedom from being the persecutor, freedom from being the oppressor, that you are free from the need to wield that, uh, free from the need to defend that, free from the need to, uh, to attach your happiness to all the things you feel entitled to. And, uh, and so it's a, it, it's, it's a freedom uh, on both ends of the spectrum, but you need freedom from different things. And so that's one way that uh, a difference stands out to me um, between a, a sin-based theology and a liberation-based theology. Liberation-based theologies, it, it just seems more useful for a context where we are reckoning with power so much, and we, and we see that different groups of people need different things in order for our society to move in a more just direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think useful is probably the right word. You know, what's the correct way to think? What's the correct way to understand? How does God assess and understand us? I, I, I'm not sure that we will ever be able to truly answer those questions. What we can ask is, what is the function of our theologies? Like, when we create and say, this is the way that we approach and think about faith, what does that produce? You know, um, Robin D'Angelo, the writer of White Fragility, says, how do you know that a, a system is unjust is its outcomes? And I think for me, part of this whole wrestling is growing up with a very guilt, innocence, sin understanding of faith felt substantially like it did not work well for me, and it did not feel like it was actually creating an experience of the world around me that felt in line with who I experienced Jesus to be. Fighting for justice, bringing mercy. There's always a question of like, how are we fighting for justice and bringing mercy when a lot of our focus is on on defining who is out and making sure we're in. You know, a lot of the the conversations of trying to be clear about who we are judging and and who are we uh, praising. Yeah, I like using the terminology of outcomes to talk about the differences. The other one that comes to me here is uh, your answer that you come to to the question, why did Jesus have to die? And maybe we've already touched on this. This has been something that our church has been engaging, is, is different ways to see what's happened on the cross from that uh, very popular guilt-innocence understanding that if, most people, if they've spent time in churches, have, have had that preached to them. Or even if you haven't spent time in churches, but you've just spent time in American culture, you've probably picked that up of like, well, you know, like, why did Jesus have to die? Because the world is so sinful and the penalty for that sin needed to be put somewhere and God decided to put it on his son. Like that, that, that is the popular understanding of what's happening there. And I think that, boy, this liberation theology, again, to use your word, is so useful for a time like this because most people hear that, hear that, that, that popular image of, of sin, guilt, innocence, Jesus, and it just feels like, boy, I, I'm, I'm not sure I see why that has to happen. I'm not sure why that is so like pressing and, and yes, oh, Jesus did the thing that we all clearly saw needed to happen. I think a lot of people hear that and think, well, I don't know, like maybe I just don't believe this story. And, and that really, that really feels, that really feels uh, uh, sad to me because when we look at the cross from a liberation perspective, to me, it's like, wow, like it, it really gets to the heart of the matter. That is something that I think we, we, when we think about sacrificing oneself to save those who are powerless 
and to expose the power of those who are, who are wielding it. I mean, that to me feels like, oh, it's, it's absolutely relevant. That absolutely is the story that we all believe and, and, and want to be freed from. So there's this sense of like, it, it, to me, a movement from sin theology to liberation theology just makes Jesus all the more uh, in the center of what's happening in our world. And like the perfect ally, the perfect model, the perfect uh, center point to navigate toward right now. You know, you're really showing the lack of shame you grew up with as a non-religious person growing up. Um, <laughs> Why? Why do you say that? Well, so, I mean, there's been many studies uh, that have found that people that grew up more religious tend to experience more shame in life. And I think it's, it's because uh, where the guilt-innocence perspective helps me, uh, it doesn't anymore. Let me say, the times where it did help me is when I got to places that I was feeling really terrible about okay. my own actions and my own behaviors. Okay. Um, and I do think that there are some people that have, have made truly regrettable choices in life, and the idea of experiencing a sense of, like, Jesus um, has, has forgiven you, and that you are... Taken the penalty for you, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly... That feels really powerful and freeing. And there's points for my life where um, I don't think the things I was feeling bad about in hindsight really should have made me feel as terrible of a person as it did. But the context of growing up in a re- religious environment um, coaches you on this. I mean, this it's about mm. how, how bad you really should be feeling. And I'm just not sure you had enough... Voices in your life, Vince, telling you how bad you should feel. <laughs> and it's showing I, right now that you... Yeah. Uh, but the truth is, for me, it is, um, the, there was a, a helpfulness in the guilt-innocence when I was constantly feeling terrible about my own behavior and choices. However, the, as I got older and began to think a little bit more about the consequences of, of my stuff... I begin to feel less of that heavy guilt the further I remove myself from that environment that I'd been living in. But I always felt confused like people like you growing up, and you seem scary to me because um, there was a sense of, like, uh, you know, what we get trained to do in an evangelical context is convince people that they truly are really bad so that we can convince them that they need Jesus to be okay. Um, the challenge in all of this is we live in a society and a culture where less and less people are growing up with that same framework, and we still are trying to convince people that they're really just terrible. Okay, I'm going to return the favor of doing a little uh, psychoanalyzing. Uh, it's, it's interesting how charitable you just were toward sin-based guilt-innocence theology. Uh, you did actually identify a situation, I think rightly, where... It is helpful, and that is when you are feeling deep, deep regret. Um, and and I think I think that is totally right. And then you identified what the problem is: is that the evangelical world has overinterpreted what falls into that category of should cause deep, deep regret. Yes, if you are feeling deep regret, it is absolutely helpful. However, if we are creating thousands, millions of people to experience deeper regret over things that just the stakes of it shouldn't be lifelong shame. Um, Maybe we got to ask, what is the function of that? And to me, there's some pretty clear political function, which is power maintenance. 
You, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm convincing you that I am, I am part of the good and the in and the out of the world and people who are not part of this in group are guilty in some way, um, I'm able to consolidate and maintain power. Uh, and I don't think it's always that explicit. I do think it's that explicit in some people. I think, I think Trump maybe in one area that he could be called intelligent has realized that this is a way to consolidate power. But I think often it's just our human brokenness, which is we want to feel important and powerful and therefore we perpetuate the cycles that maintain the status quo if we're powerful and guilt innocence certainly does that liberation very scary for a status quo it's in the name freedom and liberation it requires different questions to ask i'm not sure i want to go down there and i think my anxiety about you know my my generous uh, assessment of guilt innocence probably is still tied to like the the part of my brokenness as a human being that you know wants to remain in the fold of of it's it's probably the powerful person within me that struggles to let go uh i still want to have that status a little bit and so if i'm not if if i maintain some nuance about it then i get to probably in a broken way feel you know still entry into the the kind of evangelical world in a way that if i spoke too harshly i would feel a lot kind of a a greater sense of um rejection from that than i already do well, I wonder if we were to only take the situations that actually it is appropriate to feel this level of regret about. Uh, it's interesting that that actually finds a place within liberation theology, right? Like that finds a place within this, uh, the, within the side of liberation, which is uh, for the oppressors, for the people who have benefited from uh, power and privilege. In some ways, that it could apply this whole like Jesus take the. Um, take the penalty um, for for my um, my deep deep regret. Yeah, I actually think in terms of our conversation of racial uh, injustice in our country, that it's helpful for for those people um, who struggle with feeling uh, like when many people in light of George Floyd were finally made aware of systemic racism and and no longer felt like they were able to confront it for the first time, particularly white people. Um, I think there's a sense in that of them maybe reflecting on parts of their own lives where they have perpetuated racism, either explicitly, some people realizing, oh man, when I said that, when I did that, that actually created an inequitable outcome for people of color, or even just, oh, I have so benefited from the status quo that my passivity has perpetuated inequity. There's a sense of like, in that space, what liberation of the cross offers you is a sense of Jesus says, I hear you, I see you, I find forgiveness in you. Now humble yourself and walk forward in finding a better way forward. And there's certainly a case of that. Or the other example of people that I know that have experienced some real deep regret and found freedom is people that I know who have committed infidelity. And there's a sense of like, there's just deep, deep, deep regret in that. And the sense of like, feeling like they can lay that down and their entire life going forward is not just defined by that. Or people who've been to prison for mistakes that they've made. This is a real strong thing. Like, my grandfather is a prison chaplain. There's a sense of, like, what Jesus offers you is... But in all those cases, what Jesus is offering is liberation. He's offering a yes. freedom yes. from your Still own. Still, the foundational piece is liberation. And, and if, it, if, it is, if it is standing in the way of the, of the penalty of, of, for your regret, that actually, that's just in service of this deeper thing, which is liberation. The last piece in here um, that I sort of recognize as a key difference between a sin-based theology and a liberation-based uh, theology 
is the role of violence. Um, mm. And I think this is one of, th- that we've sort of touched on this, and it's one of the reasons that so many people, I think, hear the, the commonly um, talked about story of Jesus as, uh, as, it, as it's often presented and think, it just doesn't apply. I just don't believe that story. Because there is this real am- ambiguity around violence and, uh, and, and the role of violence and God's role in violence in that commonly told story. Uh, and, and the ambiguity is that you have this, uh, this, this ministry and this activity of Jesus of Nazareth, which is inspiringly nonviolent. And then you have this culmination of this guy's ministry and activity on earth being very violent. And in, in some way, God is like party to that violence. And it, I just think like so many people hear that and it just breaks their brain and they're just like, I think I'm tapped out. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. And what I think liberation theology frees us from in that is it helps us to see something that a, a sort of drumbeat we've had in our church for a while now is that the cross is about human violence, not God's violence. That violence is absolutely a part of the story. There's no way around it. But the, the, the source of that violence is the human need to blame shift and to defend and to uh, you know, get, circle around my entitlements and make sure they stay mine, to protect my power, to scapegoat, and to, to decide, you know, this is, the, this is the reason for the problems, and so they're going to be the people that we excommunicate or kill or make a scapegoat. And what, uh, where, where God enters into that, that again and again and again formula in humanity is not to, like, agree with the violence or add more violence to the fire, but is to, is to step into it and expose just how violent it is. And so if, if Jesus is God come to humanity— God says, I, I'm, I'm going to do the ultimate nonviolent thing, which is sacrifice myself to your broken system. And, that, and therefore, you don't hurt the powerless in society. They don't have to be victims because I'm going to be the victim myself. And I will, free, I, I will offer at least an opportunity for those in power to be free from their violence by exposing just how broken it is. You killed God is essentially the message to the powerful. Um, and so that I think is, is another really, really important difference that I see, uh, because I think that ambiguity around violence and, and God and, and wondering like, is this God a monster or is he nonviolent? Because I'm hearing two messages. I think that's a big reason people are like, I'm not interested in faith. You know, we talked a lot about what are the, what are the implications, results, or uh, impact of, of said theologies. I think that a lot of people maybe get stopped in their tracks even before they get to the place of like i'm i feel discomfort about uh the the central story of my faith being based on a god who secretly wants to beat and murder me yeah where do they get stopped the result of the of of a uh guilt innocence individualist sin exclusive perspective of faith just creates everything in terms of assessing in versus out Guilty versus not guilty. Where do we sit in here? We're going to make sure you feel convicted for the bad things you do. The things we're going to talk about on Sunday are going to be either a version of, hey, here's good stuff you should do, or here's bad stuff you shouldn't do. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, I actually spoke to a really good friend of mine. I think the truth is they came to a lot of the same conclusions that I came to, but I just had the space and people in my life to wrestle with these things and find a different version of experience. And I think most people just quit. I just don't want to do this. So I have a friend that told me that it wasn't so much he decided 
he didn't want to go to church anymore. It wasn't so much that he decided he didn't believe in Jesus. He just decided he wanted out of the game. Like this, this constant experience of assessing, am I in versus out? Is that person in versus out? Where do I, where do I fall in, in this whole dichotomy? It just felt exhausting. It didn't feel life-giving. I'm not, I don't want to even participate in the thing that you're dealing with. And then the, the things that are brought back to them are still involved in that game. And they're just like, I don't want to listen. This is why I think people are not interested in church. What I hear from people that don't go to church, and they go to church. It's not so much that people said things that offended them. It's just, they're talking about things they don't care about. You're just not even, you're, you're, you're not addressing the questions I have. You're asking questions that I'm not even asking. And there's just a separation of, of wanting to stick in the game. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. I, I suppose my in would be different because I'm, I'm not the person who experienced the game mm-hmm. and then found the game to be just utterly crap, you know, and, and so wanted to tap out. Uh, but I am the person who's seen other people around me yeah. play the game. Yeah. And, uh, and so in, in those cases, it's interesting because when you, when you, when you interact with people, I think, I think this, this is the, the, the truth in what you're saying of it actually happens earlier than we get to, uh, investigating the thoughts. It's, you just see other people around you who played that game and you think that didn't serve them. <laughs> it's clear. Um, they have a bend towards shame or they, uh, you know, have this this uh this strained relationship with their parents or with the town that they came from um you know it's all of those things that you just see and and they just like they they smack of like wow like i i don't think i would want to touch that because that seems like it's hurt them or it seems like it's not served them um and yeah that's what comes a, a long way before you get to any like understanding like what's the roots underneath that and why and why is it uh so hurtful um yeah, I I think you're right. Just just by the way uh, you either experienced the game yourself or you saw other people experience the game, um, man. Yeah, it's it 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 just seems like you. I don't want to go there. Yeah, well, and I think about who are the people from my experience of faith growing up that I was like, I really do want to live a life like yours. I that that looks attractive to me. That is what I want. You know, I I, I think my I think my mother is one of those people that I look at like the way that faith has lived out in her life. And the truth is, it's not deeply informed by her constantly trying to earn her place with God. It's not, it's, she does not live out a guilt, innocence experience of faith. You know, as a professional counselor, her, her lived experience is very much about bringing freedom. It is, it's so much about her experience of faith being like, what God has for you is always good. And he always wants more for you. And then uh, the way that that faith found life was through time of prayer and connection with God, like leaning into connection with God. And then the life that found that the, the way that that found action in life is her leaving an entire movement of people to gain voice and position for women and leadership. It was a sense of like, Oh man, like that's what I want to be a part of. Well, you uh, gave us the term earlier useful rather than right versus wrong. And, uh, and I, I think that that really hits home. I mean, what, what strikes me about, you know, when you're, you're talking about your, your mom and like a picture of somebody whose faith did inspire more faith in you, we're, we're talking about a lived experience. The way that you make sense of all of that and the, and the belief structure that you build to support that, to help make sure that your image of God is one who brings freedom, it's all secondary, man, you know? And if it's not serving you, if it's not useful, then you know, like that's what needs to be torn down. 
Uh, and so, yeah, that more more power to any uh, sense of uh, of of understanding that's going to lead us to those transcendent experiences. And uh, that's why I think what we're doing in this series is so important because if the only voices that inform the way that we understand faith are the voices of the the powerful, the voices of theologians, uh, white male American European theologians we are very likely going to miss something. We need to experience the freedom of humility. We need to experience a society that is pushing for the freedom of all people. And I think those things are only going to be made possible if we're decentralizing voices of power and actually listening to those who experience a life like Jesus, one that experienced marginalization and oppression. That doesn't mean that you and I, fellow privileged dude, like stay quiet. We just have to make sure that we're using our voice not to centralize our experience. We're using our voice to centralize uh, those voices that would be marginalized because we need to be part of what's happening here. And our silence and our passivity isn't going to help. And neither is us centralizing our own experience. Very good. All right. Well, that's all we have for this week's midweek podcast. We want to hear uh, from you. We want you to help us uh, guide our discussions going forward. So tell us what you think, uh, brownlinechurch at gmail.com. And until we're together again, we'll talk soon. Later.